Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the What's Holding You Back January Writing Challenge edition of the 7am Novelist. I'm Michelle Hooper, your host. Now this month, we're live talking about everything that might hold a writer back from producing the work that they want to write and how they might overcome those roadblocks. Today, we get to hear from three wonderful writers and friends. We have Cara Wood, Sarah Johnson Allen, and Joanna Rakoff. Good morning, ladies. Thank you so much for being on the show. Good morning. Good morning. All right. So everyone, if you are here with us live, um, again, feel free to say hello on the chat. Also feel free to, um, if you have similar problems as our, our listeners do that we were talking about today, feel free to mention those on the chat and you can give any details about that on the chat. If you have your own ways of solving those problems, you can also mention those on the chat or other resources that you have found that have been helpful for you. And so that you could just kind of join the conversation that way. I think that's very helpful. Okay, Cara Wood is a professional writer and marketer with a master's degree from Clark University. She's a graduate of our Grub Street Novel Incubator program and her fiction is set in a future only slightly more terrifying than the present. <laughs> Sarah Johnson Allen is a professor and author whose debut novel, Down Here We Come Up, was the winner of the 2022 Big Moose Prize from Black Lawrence Press. She is currently working on a novel as well as a book of nonfiction about her 17th century home in coastal Massachusetts. And Joanna Rakoff is the author of the best-selling memoir, My Salinger Year, and the novel, A Fortunate Age. Okay, we're going to get right to our listeners' questions. We first have a question from Rich about narrative distance. Here we go. Hi, Michelle. Happy New Year. Here's a topic for possible inclusion in the 7 a.m. novelist sessions this month. What is narrative dissonance in a novel? How do you spot it? And what strategies can you, can you use to address it? I asked because I received some feedback from an agent on one of my early novels, The Big White Calm, which you read in part, about how there was too much narrative dissonance in the novel. She didn't provide any additional feedback, and while I've read some on the topic, I must admit I have no real idea how to avoid it or spot it in a piece I've written. Thanks, Rich. All right, this is a great question. My, my first thought is, what is that agent doing by throwing this bomb at the writer and then not providing any additional <laughs> information? Uh, again, we were talking about this yesterday, the day before, but um, be careful uh, when you just get uh, a comment from a single person um, because that person could be wrong. Um, that person could be biased. Um, and uh, also, I mean, some most of the agents that I've worked with and I've rent, uh, met are really lovely people. They're smart. They're passionate about their work. They're kind. They really want to help writers. They're usually overworked and usually have very little time to actually give more detailed notes. However, there are a few that I've run into that um, will kind of throw language out there just to have something to say, particularly if they are rejecting a manuscript. And I've also found that they use terms in a wrong way. So, you know, does she actually mean narrative dissonance? Is that what she's really talking about? But let's do talk about narrative dissonance, um, just in case this is a problem. And again, this is narrative dissonance, not narrative distance. 
And so this occurs anytime any elements of a narrative just don't fit with each other. Um, you know, you might be creating a kind of alternate world or alternate reality uh, where you've got, I don't know, orcs running around in battle um, and all of a sudden a train will come through and we get confused because we're like, wait, are there trains in this world? But it also can happen in realist fiction where you're just trying to create a, an, a complete world that makes sense to the reader. And it's also can be about character motivations um, or any believability in that way. Okay. So um, we're going to start with Joanna first on this, because Joanna, you said that you were having a conversation about this just the other day with a writer friend, it sounds like. Yeah, it's true. Um, and I sort of have like too much to say, just like I seem to always do. So I'm going to try to like give you a few bullet points. Um, and I guess the first thing I would say is just to step back a little bit. I just want to echo um, Michelle's sentiment that like you obviously like can't. It sounds and I say this in like a way, like a sort of empathetic way, because I do this all the time. Like I'm still thinking about like mean things people said to me in third grade, literally. Um, but um, but like one person will say something to you and it really gets stuck in your head, right? Like we all are thinking about like the things someone said to us in like our like first year workshop in our MFA program. Like, I mean, whatever. So you do sometimes have to just be like, that was one person let's just let this go. Um, and as a person who, so that's number one, um, that person probably not again, like this sounds harsh, but it's just reality. Like that agent probably did not spend a lot of time with your manuscript, might not have read the whole thing, you know, and it is very, very true that this is number two. Um, I, um, you know, quite literally wrote a book about working at an agency and I, which it was about my first job, you know, working at an agency, but I worked at other agencies. I was a reporter who reported on publishing for a long time. I have so many friends in the publishing world. And like the brass tacks truth is that, you know, yes, there are so many agents who are going to take the time to like when they have and, you know, a manuscript or a writer they're considering, they're going to take the time to explain why they're not taking you on. But I would actually say the vast majority, like quite frankly, like don't have time to do that. Like they don't have time to write you an editorial letter. And most editors, like let's say you have an agent and they're auctioning off your book. Um, the vast majority of editors who are turning it down, you know, are just going to be like, call your agent and be like, not for me, you know, or maybe. And I remember receiving so many notes like this. This is a little bit old school. This doesn't happen all the time. Like maybe they're going to send a letter to your agent saying like, it, this has narrative dissonance, like it doesn't work for me or like the main character wasn't sympathetic enough. And the reality is like, first of all, a lot of the time an assistant is writing that note, like the assistant has read it and written a reader's report and the agent is just like copying and pasting or the assistant is just literally writing it themselves. It's not even the agent and assistants are usually very smart. Um, and so I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just saying like, you have to kind of like not put too much stock in anything like this ever. Um, especially when there's like some kind of like piece of jargon. Like I, I consider narrative dissonance a piece of jargon that like, yeah, I don't know. Like I would never use that term, like talking to a friend about their book. Okay. All that said, the final thing I have to say is that like, I don't know. I do think that there is a range of like, 
narratives holding together. So what the conversation that I mentioned to Michelle was about this book, Alice Elliott Dark's true masterpiece, Fellowship Point, which Mm -hmm. is the work of 18 years. I'm sure some of you out there have read it. Alice Elliott Dark is like one of the great writers of our day. Her short stories are incredible. Her early books are great, but this is like her masterpiece. Um, And um, it's a huge epic novel um, about two sort of elderly ladies. It goes back into their history, but it's also about like land and American identity and all sorts of ethical and incredible things. And there are, there's a pretty big cast of characters. And um, what we were talking about was actually how incredibly like kind of like Dickensian and perfect this novel is. Um, and that it somehow is like incredibly, uh, the characters, even the smallest characters are so interesting and well-developed, but that um, the plot works so well. Like we were sort of saying this novel has everything, like it works on every level. It also works on a philosophical level. It works on a historical level. Um, And what my friend, um, who's a writer that you guys might know, whose name is Jessica Shaddock. She's an incredible novelist who lives here in Boston. Um, She was talking about how like toward the beginning, there's this tiny crime mentioned that a might, what you think is going to be a minor character commits. And that crime as in like a Dickens novel or, you know, uh, actually, um, you know, an Edith Wharton novel, that kind of thing, like resonates throughout and it comes to have huge significance in the book. And so I mentioned this because it's an example of like a book with no narrative dissonance. Like every single thing in the book is there purposefully. There's nothing that's just there as like a throwaway detail. There's nothing that's there extraneously. Um, And so that's like a dream. But conversely, I swear this is the last thing I'm going to say. There are so many great works of fiction that are literally like classics that don't totally work. Like I was just finishing Sigrid Nunez's um, early novel, The Last of Her Kind, which is so incredible and everyone should read it. And there's this whole... it too works in the same way. And at the beginning, there's a whole thing about the main character writing um, a paper on the Great Gatsby at Barnard. And then on the final pages, you see that paper. And in that paper, she basically talks about how the Great Gatsby does not work narratively and none of it makes sense. And I love the Great Gatsby and have read it like 10 times, but I was like, oh my God, she's right. So, you know, you have to sort of just like write the novel you want to write and you need to write and you feel like the world needs and not worry about like something called narrative dissonance. That's my point. I also think it might be about paying attention to what you already have on the page as you're working forward. So using what you already have on the page to provide you further plot, further characterizations, further incidents, instead of kind of jumping ahead um, or putting things from the outside world and kind of shoving them in there um, so that that can help you create a complete whole. But at the same time, I agree with Joanna. I mean, there are plenty of books that, I can't remember which writer said this, but that that every book is broken. Um, and, yes. and that. And then sometimes there are writers um, 
that do this for a reason. Um, so, Kara, you're working, you work a lot in fantasy worlds. And so you're creating these huge, complex, amazing worlds. And Kara's work is always doing these incredible. How do you deal with it in uh, in your work? It's funny. I kind of love this question. I know we're talking about like, this is a very like weird term. And the first term that came to mind for me actually was from psychology course. I took it of like cognitive dissonance because, and I can see in the chat too, people are kind of talking about doing things, you know, sometimes dissonance is good because we want characters to sort of like rethink what they're thinking. Um, but then when we think about narrative distance, I think Joanna, what you were saying around like Sometimes there's a book that's so perfectly put together, you know the thread you're following. And as the writer, can you find those threads that are also consistent? Um, so when I think about narrative distance, and I know that Rich asked about, you know, how do I spot what's broken in my book? I think about it as you need to look at the who. So are people making these consistent decisions or are when they're changing, is there some external reason that they're changing? So like example would be, you know, Darcy is like the stiff and standoffish dude. If he started dancing flamboyantly with someone else other than Elizabeth, we would be like, what the F? Like, this isn't him. You wouldn't buy the love story at the end. You know, he kind of gushes at the end and it's like this big breakthrough that we feel is big. Um, and then the other two, so it's the who, and then it's like the when of, you know, how are you out, like, how are you laying out the the facts? And it doesn't necessarily need to be linear, but how is the reader discovering what they're putting together? So if there's a crime at the beginning and you, you're still piecing together pieces of it or how people were connected to the crime, we'll still follow it even if it's not in order. Um, and then you asked me, Michelle, I guess, like I'm sort of getting to the last part of your question, which is like the why. And to me, there's the facts of like a place that you've built. But then what I tend to do as I build future worlds is I actually think about where they came from. So a lot mm -hmm. of times I'll have 30 or 50 years before my world. I'll have to know a little bit about what that history was, um, because I think about in general, people want to sort of follow a through line and a question of like, um, why we're reading what we're learning or what has happened. And a lot of times with sci-fi, even though we're talking about the future, it's actually about our present day. And so to sort of at least know how my world came to be helps me then rationalize every detail that I put into that world. And hopefully for the reader, they're also sort of piecing that and answering that question. How did we get here is sort of a question I think you're always asking in the back of your mind in sci-fi. Um, one of my favorite all-time novels is The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and it is pure chaos. So like distance, <laughs> insanity, the characters, there's so many deus ex machinas in there, the characters are constantly saved. But the question is, how do you write a good guidebook to the universe? And the real answer is that you can't because it's chaos. And so that chaos suddenly fits into this thread that the reader can follow. Yeah. Oh, I love that. So that's very, very good. Um, you know, I also think about um, um, who is it? It's not uh, um, Kat, uh, Kate Atkinson. No, that's Kate Atkinson. 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 Yeah, but that's it's it's not her. Anyway, um, <laughs> it's a retelling of Bluebeard, which she did not do. Um, oh. really, even though it's even. <laughs> So it's a retelling of Bluebeard that that you would assume would would have to uh, sit in a certain time period, 
Um, and she does develop a time period that feels, you know, people are riding around on, on horses and in carriages, and there's an old castle that they live in. Uh, and then a phone rings. Um, and you're like, what? There's a phone there. But what she's trying to do is actually create that dissonance and mm -hmm. actually, you know, upset our feeling of, of, of where we are and how we can get comfortable. And I'm seeing more and more of that um, actually in a lot of speculative work, particularly on, you know, you have never let me go which seems like it takes place in an old English village. And yet they also have the ability to do cloning. So that would be narrative dissonance, but that instead creates this kind of phenomenal, I, I, you know, putting those pieces together for me just functions well. I don't know, maybe it's about how broken our world is and how many things just don't don't actually make sense. Our realities don't actually make sense that we're beginning to have more and more of these stories break that narrative dissonance um, or have narrative dissonance. Um, Sarah, what do you think? Well, I think it's, so I agree with what everyone's saying. I think it's tough when you're getting feedback from really busy people who and you're not sure what to make of it. And a lot of times it's conflicting. Um, and I agree that you have to kind of know what to do. I had a, like a potential agent who's like, well, I like your novel, my first novel, but you're going to have to take out like the drug smuggling and the guns. It needs to be a mother daughter story. And I was like, no, I like the drugs and the guns. Like, but I thought about it <laughs> um, and I understood her point to some extent. So I think that's a whole nother th discussion, right? Is like, what do you do with the feedback you get from people? Um, I had to Google this term because I kind of knew intuitively what was meant perhaps by the agent, even though, yes, we don't have a ton of information. But I thought it was really interesting that in video games, there's a term called the most of the stuff I could find online was about Ludo narrative dissonance, which has to do with video gaming. And it made me kind of I'm jumping around here a bit, but it may and we're going to get on video games with the next um, person, too. But I think um, I have some game players in my household that are teenagers. And I guess what I was thinking about is when I asked my middle child to do a like to do a chore. He pretends, they had to explain this to me, he pretends to be an NPC or a, is it a non-playing character or yeah. no, whatever. And it's like him having no depth, like a robot pretending to unload the dishwasher angrily, but like blankly. So I'm just kind of jumping here to guess that maybe what the agent, maybe, I have no idea without reading it or having context is like something's off, but maybe there's not as much depth as there needs to be. Maybe there's something that like the writer can continue in a future draft to explore, to resolve narrative dissonance. And a lot of the chat is talking about how in music or it also in video games, it's not always a bad thing to have dissonance. Um, but I think figuring out what it means um, in the, just to kind of, everyone's already talked a lot about this. I think I agree, but the only thing I would add is like on how to spot it maybe. Um, for me in general, thinking about when I was querying, I queried like over 70 agents before I got one. And even when my book went out on submission and we were getting like editorial back, oh, I just blanked on what I was going to say. Oh, there might be some outlier comments, but once I had talk about dissonance versus distance, once I had some distance, I could kind of see what they had said. Mm -hmm. And my agent, even though sometimes I'd be like, what? Or her reader. Yes. Notes come from her reader. I'd be like, what? That's not like I was told like, oh, like these are feel like political stereotypes. It's like people say that in my town every single day of every single morning, but it didn't matter because in the narrative, it was not working in yeah. the narrative. I had to resolve it. It doesn't matter that that's what's said in my coffee shop every morning 
in the art and the work, it was not coming through. So the some of the ways I spot it, which I'm sure the writer knows, but sometimes I think it's just worth kind of reiterating because I need it reiterated for me, is printing it out and reading it on paper or... Um, something I've been doing lately is like having, um, I don't put my work into like AI software on the internet because I don't know where that's going. Um, but I will like put it into my notes app or have like, you know, word will read it to you and then give yourself some time, sit back and listen to it and listen to it for that. Not the word level, not the way you're writing it, but like with the narrative, are there things that are off and what could that mean? And the only other thing I could think of, even though there is a cost associated is sometimes you can like um, submit things for like editorial. Like I know my press has like people who read and give like editorial that costs money. But if you really were like, especially if multiple agents were saying it, I'm assuming this is a potential agent. Um, yeah, that's all just like some ways to get some like space so that you can see, is that true? Or is this completely out of nowhere and it's a total lie and there's no truth to it? Yeah. So I've talked about, yeah, I've talked about you need to make yourself unfamiliar with your own manuscript. So you need to be able to step away from it. That that might take uh, taking a month off, taking six months off before you look at it. It might mean actually reading it as after you printed it out, because then it can look differently to you, or it might mean reading it aloud. And so anything that can make the manuscript unfamiliar to you. Um, and I think the best way to catch these things is through other readers. And, and and you can pay someone to do this, but you can also get a layman to do this. So my husband loves telling me anytime a TV show or a film that we're watching where things don't make sense. Um, and he's, um, you know, an engineer. So... <laughs> There, I, there can, you might have other readers and people that you can go to that will specifically find these things because that's just how their brains work. Uh, so if you're worried about that, uh, go to them and maybe you can just uh, cook them dinner or something. It won't be as, as expensive for you. Okay, we need to go to the next question, which is also a biggie. This is from Margaret. She uh, wrote to me and she said that she had trouble finding a writing space. And I wrote back to her asking for more information about what her situation was. And this is what she told me. She said, the thing is I'm in Japan and my living situation is quite different from the majority of the participants, I suppose. Apartments and houses are really tiny here. My problem is that I don't have my own room, just my desk, and I'm never alone, not even at night. I live in Tokyo, which is a big city with lots of cafes, but it's not possible for me to go to a cafe more than twice a month for various reasons. Technically, I can write even when there is a bunch of kids playing Fortnite and yelling at each other next to me, but it's tough. I feel that the quality of my writing suffers and I really crave solitude and quiet. Sarah, I'm going to go back to you on this because I know this is something that you've thought about and dealt with a lot. Yeah, this might be the central struggle of my writing life. Um, not so much because of space, but, um, I work full-time, like I'm a full-time professor teaching like a heavy course load. So, uh, and I have three kids, um, and I have like cleaned my house and like all the things, like there's not a lot of, like my house is bigger, but I have a lot of space in my life. So, um, I really felt this one. I also felt, um, just shout out to the people living with Fortnite players. Cause yeah, there's a lot of yelling involved and it's like one side conversation yelling. Cause they usually have headphones. So, I mean, this does, we were talking about this before. It does indicate maybe the kids aren't tiny. Like I, I think, I, I think Joanna was actually saying like at every stage of life, there might be a different version of why this is hard. Um, so I think what's implied here is if we have Fortnite players in this small apartment, um, I think in Tokyo, right. That the, the writer is taking care of these people in some way. 
So I would argue, even if my kids are asleep, even if they're not in the same room, she has an even bigger challenge. Um, I still can't focus. Now, I am neurodivergent with some major attention issues, but I can have hyper focus in the right circumstance. So I've spent a lot of time, I actually made a list and I'll share it now, like things I've done. Um, because if I can get the right circumstances, it's worth the investment and worth the effort of finding the right space, setup, whatever. And so I'll, I'm going to read through the list really quickly with acknowledgement that these are not always possible all the time for everyone. Um, depends on, you know, if it's not kids, it could be an elderly parent. It, it could be anything, right? Like depends on what your partner is doing, depends on your schedule. Um, but the, the, and these are in dis, the order of preference. So my preference for all of us is going to some sort of writer's retreat. And I'm currently at Prospect Street Writer's House in Bennington, Vermont, which is awesome. Um, I have a full-time job with professional development money, which is a real privilege. It's not a privilege to have to work all the time. However, it is a privilege <laughs> to have that money. Um, so it's paying for it now, but I'll come back on my own dime in March. And for me, that's been the most helpful thing there. there I, you can Google this and figure it out, but there's tons of lists of writers, retreats and residencies. Some are really prestigious and you apply a year in advance and they're free. Um, a lot of them have financial aid. Um, you, you can find country lists. So that's my strongest recommendation with the acknowledgement that it's not always easy to get away. And at least yeah. I'm on an academic schedule now. When I used to work like 50 weeks out of the year, it was even harder, right? To like take time off. Um, if you can't get to a writer's retreat, I think a lot of people do a DIY retreat. I think I've heard that talked about even on this podcast, hotel, hostel, anything um, that's not your house. Um, where I am, it's actually cheaper to go to a writer's retreat usually than to actually pay for a hotel because the New England hotels are like freakishly expensive. Another option, which I think would be more expensive in a major city would be like workspaces. So I live north of Boston and I actually paid sometimes if you have company money, people will be in there like they'll have a monthly pass or something. Um, but last fall, I really was feeling the pressure of not being able to write during the semester so I booked a workspace uh, in the town I live in just on Sundays and it was $70 a month. That's money. Like that's a monthly expenditure, but I actually took my teenager, my oldest with me to do his homework. And weirdly, when we were not in our house, he didn't bother me. Now he's not four. <laughs> like if you got a four-year-old, it's a whole nother story. Um, so I found that to be pretty effective and they're set up for work. So that's another thing. Um, some of my other favorites are hotel lobbies. You don't have to buy anything to go into a hotel lobby. I will admit I've never gone into the Four Seasons and I, there's some privilege of being able to walk into a building and like sit down with your laptop and assume the security is not gonna come over and ask you to leave. But so many people are coming and going in lobbies. She mentioned coffee shops, which I don't like. Um, they are like not comfortable enough for me. I tend to run into people I know. Um, so I'm a huge fan of a hotel lobby, especially if you're in a city, but I don't know if in Japan, the culture is different where you can't just roll up into a hotel lobby that might be different. Um, libraries, I think are good. The infrastructure, my library is not great. There's not as many private spaces. And with people working from home, there's a lot of people on meetings, surprisingly, you're like, oh me, this is like a library, but okay. Which brings me to the most important tool. If you cannot get out of your house, in my opinion, in, in, in any of these spaces are headphones. 
And I know like half my friends like, oh, I just can't work with headphones. Like I can't, I can't listen to music. I need silence. But I think like anything, you can probably train yourself to use headphones. You can have white space. I listen to movie soundtracks, classical music. Sure. I I can do music with words once I get into like a, a zone, but music or sound can be a sort of like interior landscape that helps you drop into a space. Um, I'm sure the writer has already done this with like the time of day. Like I, I'm going to guess that this writer has already tried to deal with that um, early morning, late night. I'm really bad at this, but I think trying to find those pockets when people are asleep. And then I guess the last thing I would say that I think is probably the most important, it has been the hardest for me, whether you're talking about buying a pair of like Bose, like head ca- or sorry, noise counseling, head noise canceling headphones, which are expensive. Um, or whether I'm talking about going to like a writer's retreat is like unapologetically doing it. Even if you still feel guilty, people say things to me all the time. Oh, is your nanny with your kids right now? No, no, no nanny. Like, oh, are you, um, how does your husband live when you leave? I don't know when other people leave. Like, so yeah. Thank you, Joanne. (laughs) The visual. It happens to me all the time. All the time. Sorry to interrupt. Like when I've been on book tour, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to interrupt. And then it's okay. Like when I've been on book tour, like I've gone on these really big tours to like India and Australia. And like every second people were like, who's with your children? And I was like, who do you think is what? Like, really? You know, like when like, I don't know, like, you know, Angelina Jolie is like on set or people like who's with your children, you know, anyway. Or if, 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 if people work late, like if if I work late for my paying job, like, you know what I've learned to do? This is another topic and we'll move on. I've learned to say when I go to writing retreats, I'm going to work. I'm on a work trip because it's true. I just have to do two jobs. Thank you very much. Instead of one. Thank you. I actually have to do three or four, but never mind. Sorry. My bitterness is coming up, but my point is I still feel guilty because we always kind of feel like the things we should be doing, which is why I have to leave my house. It's why my teenager and I can chill and like work together with our headphones in a workspace. But in my house, I can sense all the things I'm supposed to be doing. Whereas that if I'm in a neutral space, that's not mine, it's all kind of gone. So I think that's really important is like making time, even if it's not as much as you like, like, again, my kids are getting older, but for, and even, well, it doesn't matter about the kids. Like with my academic schedule, I cannot really write during the semester. Like it's just top to bottom all day long is work and family. And that's fine. Um, but I think I know that at least twice a year, I'll probably get away. I'll get away and I'll get momentum that will allow me to continue to work and less ideal. So whatever she has to do, I, I, but I feel for this one for sure. Yeah. You know, Margaret Robb, I interviewed her last spring and she, um, she started to work in gardens. Hmm. Um, and she, nice. she lived in Philadelphia, um, and she sought out garden spaces because she just, she just needed to challenge herself and find a different space. And so those are free. Um, she would sometimes have to bundle up a little bit, sometimes not. Um, she could bring her laptop. You wouldn't have, um, you know, a, a plug-in battery there, but you could, you could work there for a decent while on your uh, computer battery and she, or, or write by hand, which is oftentimes a great way to break through writer's block anyways, force yourself into a different mode of writing. Uh, so I recommend that as well. Carl, what do you think? Yeah. I mean, I think it's so funny, Sarah, because you basically named like so many of the the free options just, just get out of the house that, that I think of as well. 
Um, the, the thing that really sparked for me with this question was when I think of finding the ideal writing space, I actually also think about just getting into a flow state. I don't know how many folks are familiar with that term, but it's basically that sweet spot between like being bored, bored and being challenged. So you have to have something in front of you that you know. And so Michelle, when you were talking about, you know, using handwriting to, to um, solve a problem, when I think about that first step of like, I just need space, I just need the people in my life to not bother me. I have this one tiny desk. To me, um, it's actually like a ritual that helps me tell the people around me. So it could be a sign. It could be, I think Louisa May Alcott used to flip her pillow a certain way so that everyone else in the house knew not to talk to her. Um, and then there's also some things for yourself. So for me, it's always like, I make a cup of tea. I know I'm about to sit down for however long. And then the next thing I do is I address what I'm going to do with whatever time I have. And if what I've listed is, is hard, then I sometimes walk away and go for a walk and solve the problem that way. Or that's a nice time to sit in the park and solve the problem that way. But if not, then I've prepped my brain to just sort of focus and whether that's putting in earbuds after the fact, but I've prepped my household and I've prepped my brain and hopefully then I can jumpstart into flow knowing what I'm tackling. Um, because oftentimes I find, I think I saw someone in the chat say like, I'm retired. I have no excuse. Like I live alone. I have no excuse either. Um, but I often find them when I am setting myself up with the wrong energy for the wrong task. Um, so to me, it's all about sort of prepping both my brain and my like daily, what I'm going to do with the time. I think that's why retreats work so well is because we've all told ourselves, well, wait, I have this limited time with this limited space. Um, yeah. So I yeah. saw Chuck Klosterman, uh, speak a while ago, you know, essayist, and he was saying like, I've created a prison of my own creation. He's got kids, he's got a time frame, And so he now, he, he wrote this series of essays that are were all perfectly 1000 words because it was the time frame he had. Um, so. Yeah, yeah, excellent. We have in the chat, people are saying college campuses are another option to go to, laundromats, yes. Um, I can just imagine like the quiet tumble of the machines going as you're working. I can actually imagine that. And then Allison has suggested, she said, when my kids were little, I drew a circle around me in, ch in chalk. I told the kids I was on an island and they could only enter the island if it was really, really important. I love that. That's absolutely incredible. Joanna, what do you think? Yeah. Sorry. Um, I've Everything that you guys have mentioned I have tried successfully or and unsuccessfully. I'm just echoing everything everyone has said one time. Like I, um, I also, I have three kids who actually vary in ages from seven to 18. Um, and you know, I really struggle. I live in a tiny, tiny house. Um, I don't have, and this is surprising to people that I meet often. Like I don't have a dedicated room in our house to work. Um, and I'm just going to be really honest here. Like I am under contract for my third book, um, with my publisher, Little Brown. They have been very patient with me, this book. Um, so there are some like real world reasons that it's overdue. Like I took a break to like write a screenplay and make a movie. So that's like an, a totally valid, like cool reason. Right. But, um, but, and there was a whole pandemic, you know, um, and I was trapped at home with everyone and whatever, but, but, you know, part of the reason for that is like 
life situation, like not having an ideal place to work. Um, and so I'm telling you this just so that you understand, like, no matter what stage you're at of writing, no matter what your life situation is, like you, and you can not even necessarily make excuses. Like you can have real life things that cause disruptions in work. Like it's real. I had an elderly parent who was constantly getting sick and I was constantly having to go to her and, you know, take care of her. And I don't in any way resent that or regret that. Like I was happy to, you know, but I myself have in recent years, um, gotten a huge amount of work done on retreats, um, both of my own making. And like, I'm in two weeks, um, actually in a week, I'm going to Yado, um, for a weirdly long period of time, which hopefully is going to be okay. Um, and, and last spring I went to the Malay colony for a month and I swear I didn't, it was so hard to kind of work after so many disruptions, um, and get back into this book. And so I think the total that I worked on the actual book was like maybe a week and a half. I also had to like come back home a whole bunch and do like see people's school plays, whatever. And, um, um, I had an anaphylactic reaction to some food ate. Like there was, it was just not smooth at all. And yet in like the week, week and a half that I actually worked on the book, I think I got like a year's worth of work done and I didn't work around the clock. Like it was just that there was nothing else to do. And so, um, you know, I completely agree that like, it partially is just your mindset that you're like, I'm there to work, but it's also the freedom. And I think the hotel is the same from like any domestic tasks that everyone has at any stage of life. Um, I, and life situation, um, I have a close friend here in Boston who, um, you know, she does have a partner, um, but does not have kids. She's a partner and a dog, but she still has, and she lives in a large house and she still has an outside office that she goes to every day. And I remember being, oh, okay. So my daughter, this is Izzy. She wants me to mention that we have a dog too. Um, <laughs> whose name is Oswald. And, um, and so anyway, this friend, I remember being shocked that she had an outside office. Cause I was like, why would you need to get out of your huge house where you have an office and you have like four bedrooms and like, you're only living in one of them. But I think it's just real. It's sometimes you need a space where you're freed from other obligations. It, it's almost like when you go to that space, you're a different person, you know, like your, your work self, right? Um, you're not yourself who does laundry and takes the dog out and whatever. And all of this is really just to say um, that like, um, I think the person who wrote in, her name is Margaret. Um, I, like, I just wonder, Margaret, if like there's a way to, to use my friend Miranda's term. Um, I guess many people use this term, just like throw money at the problem. Like, is it possible to rent an office in your neighborhood? Like here in my, oh my God, Oswald, hush. In my neighborhood, you can see what my life is like. How am I supposed to do anything? Like, I can't even think. Um, like I have a friend here, um, the novelist Laura Zygmunt, the way she wrote, um, not her most recent novel, but the one before that was she rented a therapist's office when the therapist wasn't using it because she couldn't afford to rent an office full time. And she just like was able to work around the hours they, they happened to be convenient for her. They were like during school hours and on the weekend. Um, it was very inexpensive um, in part because like it was just found money for the therapist. So I mentioned this because like maybe there's an option, you know, um, and I say this with like incredible 
compassion because like I haven't found an option, you know, <laughs> like I don't have an outside office, but for you, maybe there is one and it's worth investigating. I'm sort of giving you the advice that friends give to me and that I would give to a close friend in your situation. Um, I don't know, maybe you can get away for two days. Um, final thing I'll say, like I, last month, um, I went through like a really, really just brutal rough time with like, you know, ill, then dying, then dead parent, son trapped in Israel during Hamas attacks, whatever, sick child in and out of hospital. And I had this essay that was due and I just had to get it done. I, there was no flexibility. It had to be in. Like there just, it had to be done. It was late and it just had to, had to, had to be done. This book was going to press this anthology and I wasn't going to give it up. It was a big deal thing. And so I went um, and stayed at the hotel that I mentioned in the chat, the Hotel Salem, which is an hour away from my house. I wasn't even there for two days. And I just worked frantically the entire time. I like bought a bag of food from Trader Joe's and just like ate that food mostly. And took I took long walks, like as Carl was talking about, um, when I couldn't think through problems in this huge essay, like just in my head in this room. And so maybe like maybe that can be a sustaining thing, like going away for just a couple of days a month rather than going to cafes. I don't know. Yeah. Point is money, maybe throw money at the problem. <laughs> or if you don't have that, I mean, tell the people in your life, this is what you're doing. And I think a lot of particularly women do not do that. Tell your kids, draw that line of chalk around you. Tell, uh, tell your parents, tell your partner, tell your friends, tell your colleague. Um, tell them this is what you're doing and how important it is to you and tell them again and again, if you have to. Um, but we do need to make that space for ourselves. Okay. We're going to have to wrap up. You can find our full writing schedule or our for, uh, full listening schedule and also our writing schedule. That'd be great. And on our Substack page at 7amnovelist.substack.com, subscribe there for updates. You can also find our full range of podcast episodes on that page, including episodes from our past two writing challenges, as well as on any of your favorite podcast platforms. Ladies, you have any, any final advice on breaking through your writing obstacles? Any final words really quick? Just, uh, Joanna, I know you have to go. Oh my gosh, I do. Joanna says money, throw money at it. <laughs> That's not my advice. <laughs> <laughs> my advice is really um, to try to kind of like find your, I'm thinking really of both people like to kind of like find your inner compass, you know, and like ignore the voices outside in all ways, like the people playing Fortnite and also like the agents or whoever they are saying this is wrong with your book, you know, yeah. and just find your own inner compass. Because you can't change the world, but you can change you. Cara, how about you? Yeah, I think, you know, be kind to yourself, show up. Everyone faces obstacles. It's just one day of writing. So just, you know, put in the time and yeah, just build, build, build. Yeah, day by day. How about you, Sarah? I don't think I could say anything better than that. I guess, yeah, just echoing, taking the time and space. And even if you're like, I don't know if I should do this. I don't know. I think one of the hard things about writing for most of us is it's not generate, even if you're publishing, you're not generating the kind of money that you feel like you can justify these expenses, but you just kind of push through. And if it wasn't this, it would be skincare. So just do it. <laughs>
<laughs> yes, spend it on your writing time instead of skincare because you're going to get old anyway. All right, that's the final word. That's my final word. Excellent. Thank you all so much. I thought you guys were fabulous on this. And I thank everyone else for joining us. And I hope you got a lot of inspiration out of the, dis uh, the discussion. And I hope you're also get back to your writing desk. Good luck and good writing. <laughs>